We have a very fun topic to explore today. It's the topic of lying. <laughs> Obviously, it's not a fun topic, is it? But, but whether we like to admit it or not, it's a universal issue. The reality is that all of us at times are not completely honest. And we can lie, and we can fib, and we can shade the truth. We can tell half the truth, but not the whole truth, and we can avoid the truth. And why do we sometimes do those things? We do them because we have an agenda. When we play games with the truth, it's usually because we in some way want to protect ourselves or because we want to advance our own cause in some way. And we do this as individuals, and sometimes we do it in groups. And particularly when a group is in power, whether that is in government or in business or, yes, even in the church. Sometimes it can be tempting to play games with the truth in order to protect the power of the group. And on the last night of his life, Jesus finds himself on the receiving end of group Lies, lies promoted by individuals to protect the power of a group. Lies promoted by leaders who want to protect themselves and take Jesus down. And this story is an important reminder about the power of lies to destroy. It's a great lesson that we need to periodically relearn. We find this incident recorded in the book of Matthew, chapter 26, starting in verse 57. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. File that away because in a week or two, we're going to look at what happens with Peter. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, this fellow said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. As these events take place, it's very late at night, and it has been a very full evening for Jesus. It began with the Passover meal he had with his disciples, followed by a lengthy time of prayer in a garden called Gethsemane, and then Jesus is arrested, and now he is taken to the residence of the high priest. He's taken there for trial but it's actually not a legitimate trial. It is a sham. It's conducted by this group called the Sanhedrin, which is a religious governing council. And we don't have anything like the Sanhedrin here in America. However, they're like us in one way. This group consists of two rival factions that don't get along. Those two groups are the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And their debates make Republicans and Democrats look like amateurs. 
But now what's interesting is this. These two factions unite against Jesus. And they do that because he's upsetting the established order. He does not fit with their preconceived ideas about what the Messiah should be like. He has influence with the people that threatens the power and influence of the leaders. And so these natural enemies now are united in one common goal. Get rid of Jesus. They've already made a good start on that mission by misusing their authority to arrest him. And now they misuse their authority to conduct this trial that's built on a foundation of lies. And to begin with, all cases must be tried in the Sanhedrin's chambers, which are located in the Jewish temple. But as we just read, they're meeting at the high priest's house. And this change of location means it's not an official trial means they probably can convince themselves that they don't have to play by the rules. And they don't. And yet they use this unofficial trial to reach an official verdict. So the very trial itself is a lie. It's a lie perpetrated by a group in power in order to maintain their power. And the overseer of this injustice is Joseph Caiaphas, the high priest. And under God's system of government, the Jewish high priest is supposed to serve for life until he dies. But when the Romans took over, they made this an appointed post. As a result, the role now has become political. At this time, Caiaphas has been in office about 15 years. And he likes his position. One way to do that is to keep the Romans happy. And over time, he's become more of a power broker than a priest of God. The fact is, though, in the sight of God, Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin have a responsibility, a responsibility to God to carry out justice. Yet as verse 59 of our passage makes clear, they're not searching for the truth. They just want to put a legal veneer on injustice. And they do that with a sham trial. And we see the way that they manipulate their own rules. For example, the very first part of an official Jewish trial is supposed to be evidence for the innocence of the accused person. And if, if they're really interested in discovering whether or not Jesus actually is the Messiah, then they should be diligently testing the evidence. But that doesn't happen. Evidence for the innocence of Jesus doesn't come first, it doesn't come last, it doesn't come anywhere. Instead, there is just a parade of lying witnesses. So one witness gets up and tells his story and then the next witness comes up and he contradicts the first one and the next one comes up and contradicts both of them and on and on and on. This is a direct violation of God's laws. God told his people, don't give false testimony. And he also said that at least two witnesses must agree for the facts of a case to be established. And yet virtually all of the testimony in this alleged trial violates God's standards. 
And I want to say a word about eyewitness testimony. It's a fact that, that eyewitnesses often give conflicting accounts, but the truth often can be discovered. In fact, it usually can be discovered by discerning where the witnesses are in agreement. I, I have a friend who's an attorney, and he told me a case that he got involved in was a bar fight, and there were 57 eyewitnesses, and all of them had different stories. And yet, with detailed questioning, the attorneys were able to verify six or eight key facts. You see, even with all of these widely differing accounts, they got down to the core of the truth of what had actually happened. All of that is possible in a legitimate trial, but none of that happens here in this sham trial. There are no points of agreement as witness after witness after witness gives testimony until the very end. Then they get these two witnesses who finally agree, but they agree about an ambiguous statement that Jesus made. He once made an allegorical comment about the temple of his body. And he said, this temple can be destroyed and rebuilt in three days. He was talking about his death and resurrection. These two witnesses don't understand that, and they take Jesus literally, so they turn it into Jesus attacking the actual physical Jewish temple, which you weren't supposed to do. But even that allegation is false, because if Jesus did mean his words literally, then he's not saying he wants to get rid of the temple. He's just saying, I have the ability to tear it down and rebuild it in three days. And in an honest trial, I think somebody would say, how are you going to do that? <laughs> Is that really possible? Let's figure this out. You see, they don't ask questions. They don't try and unpack the meaning of things because they don't care. They're not searching for truth. They're searching for an excuse to carry out plans. So now after all these accusations have come forth, there are no witnesses for Jesus. He's all alone. And Caiaphas demands a response and as we read in our passage, Jesus sits there silent. We have to ask, why doesn't he defend himself? I think it's because he does not want to give credence to the lies. Sometimes when we are confronted with a blatant lie, the best thing we can do is ignore it. Back when I was in college, I once ran, unsuccessfully, to become the student body president. And there was a forum one night when the candidates were supposed to each take a turn. We would stand up and present our case one by one, and then at the end there'd be a general uh, Q&A session. And I was shocked that the candidate who went before me did not present his case, but instead devoted his time to slandering me. When I got up to speak, I chose to ignore what he said, simply did what I was supposed to do and presented my case. Then later during the Q&A time, someone said, well, aren't you going to, to answer those allegations? And I said, his comments are not worthy of a response. 
really believe that sometimes the best thing to do is to ignore a lie. And I have to say, it wasn't easy to do because he said some pretty harsh things. And every ounce of my being wanted to fight back and go through those point by point. But if I'd responded, I would have dignified his lies and given them undeserved attention. It wasn't easy to ignore them, but I did. And as I thought about that, I reflected back on that moment and how hard it was to not push back. I find myself wondering, how hard was it for Jesus not to push back? So he listened to all of these lies. Because these are people Jesus created. These are people Jesus came to earth to love. These are people Jesus came to serve. These are people Jesus came to die for. And this is how they treat him. It would have been so tempting to be indignant. Yet he just sits there. Calm. Quiet. Still. Silent. Silent because I believe he doesn't want to respond to outrageous lies. There's another reason that Jesus is silent. He's silent because he's fulfilling an historic role. A role that was prophesied by Isaiah some 700 years earlier. Let's take a look at this passage in the book of Isaiah, chapter 53. Isaiah writes, We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. At this sham trial, Jesus chooses to be as meek as a lamb in order to become the perfect sacrificial lamb of God. He is on the verge of going to the cross where he's going to take our sins, as Isaiah says, our iniquities upon himself. Isaiah says that a a lamb is... Silent before its shears. Most lambs I've seen are bleeding like crazy. (laughs) But they're still pretty helpless. Lamb can't really defend itself. Jesus acts as defenseless as a lamb. Because he's the lamb of God. And it's tragic as all of these events are on that final night. There's incredible hope in what he's doing. Because as Isaiah makes clear, he is doing this for you and he's doing it for me and he's doing it for our lost world. We are like lost sheep. And Jesus takes this abuse so that when we put our trust in him, we can experience freedom from the bondage of sin. And we do it because Jesus, like a meek lamb, Caiaphas is the high priest. He knows the scriptures. He knows about these things. But he has no interest in discovering the truth. And so he presses Jesus further. And finally Jesus responds and he basically utters the one true statement of the entire trial. Let's take a look as this continues. Verse 63, the high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. 
Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said so, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. This gets down to the crux of the matter. Is Jesus the Messiah? That's the only question worth wrestling with. It's the only question that matters. And we need to remember that the Jewish people have been taught to pray for the coming of the Messiah. And many of them in that first century are eagerly looking for the Messiah. They believe that his arrival might be imminent. And so when Caiaphas asked Jesus if he is the Messiah and Jesus does not deny it, that's an invitation for the high priest of all people to want to investigate. After all, somebody, sometime, must be the Messiah. And why couldn't Jesus be the one? There sure is lots of compelling evidence to indicate that he just might be. He teaches the scriptures with unique authority. He performs incredible miracles of healing the sick, freeing people from demonic oppression. He commands nature and he even raises dead people back to life. And he forgives sin. Tragically, very few of the Jewish religious leaders examined the evidence of Jesus' life and ministry objectively. And yet, as spiritual shepherds, they have a responsibility to do so, not just for their own sake, but for the sake of the people that God has entrusted to their care. They need to honestly wrestle with that question, is Jesus the Messiah? That's what Caiaphas now wants to know, but It's not an honest request. Caiaphas doesn't really believe that Jesus can be the Messiah because he doesn't want Jesus to be the Messiah. A Messiah would threaten Caiaphas' position and power and prestige. And he does what human beings sometimes do, which is we subordinate the plans of God to our own plans. Caiaphas does this in a really big way, but I think sometimes you and I do that in small ways. We try and exchange our agenda for God's agenda. I think anytime we do that, we have forgotten just who God is. And we remember that we serve the living God, then His agenda always should come first. Caiaphas seems to think he's exempt from that, so he makes a major mistake. He's more interested in himself than in God. And yet it's fascinating that even in his insincerity, he, he does ask the one question that matters. And in response, Jesus makes this one true statement of the night because he links himself directly with a messianic prophecy from the book of Daniel. And in that response to Caiaphas, Jesus is saying, oh yes, I am the Messiah. 
And to understand the impact of what Jesus says, I want us to look at what Daniel says about this, this prophecy from which Jesus draws. It's in Daniel chapter 7, uh, verses 13 and 14. Daniel writes, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. Look at this. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Again, Caiaphas, he's the high priest. He knows the Bible. He knows this prophecy and he knows what it means. He knows that God the Father, called the Ancient of Days here, is going to give authority to the Messiah called the Son of Man. And the Messiah is going to come and rule over God's kingdom forever. And when the Messiah comes, he will come on clouds of judgment. He will bring justice to all those who have been victims of injustice. He will bring judgment upon all those who have practiced injustice. It's a prophecy designed to fill the people of God with great hope that Jesus, who has come, Jesus is going to come and restore all things to the way that God intended always is a brighter day ahead with Jesus. Part of what Jesus does with this prophecy, by linking himself to it in his response to Caiaphas, he not only says, I'm I'm the Son of Man, I'm the Messiah, he's pointing the judgment of this passage to Caiaphas. Because he says, you are going to see me come on the clouds. There's such great irony in this. Caiaphas has engineered this trial to convict Jesus. And he has just been convicted by the Son of God. And oh, is he enraged. Look what happens next in our passage. Verse 65. Then the high priest tore his clothes, which was something you were supposed to do when you had heard blasphemy, and said, he has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He's worthy of death, they answered. The whole Sanhedrin has now convicted him. But then look what they do. They spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Another slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? Caiaphas accuses Jesus of blasphemy, and yet even that is not technically true. Under Jewish law, someone only can be guilty of that charge if they apply the divine name of God, Yahweh, to themselves. Jesus doesn't do that because the prophecy in Daniel draws a distinction between the Heavenly Father and the Messiah. And yet, for this crowd, it's close enough. They can mischaracterize his answer and they can rush to judgment. They've accomplished now what they want. A false trial full of false testimony has achieved a false verdict. And now the guards and all of the others in the crowd begin to mock Jesus and spit on him and beat him. 
And that is not justice. Whoops. Oh. <laughs> that's not justice, that's injustice. This is not a display of impartial law. It's an exhibition of raw, abusive power. It's always wrong when that's done. It is particularly heartbreaking when it's being done by people who claim to speak for God. Sad. It's heartbreaking. And yet Jesus endures it because of his intense love for everyone in this room. His intense love for this broken world. His intense love for lost people who he wants to draw to himself. So there is hope in this tragic story. Jesus, the Lamb of God. There are a whole lot of layers to this story, but, but I want to highlight three things that I think we can take away. And number one is this. It has to do with spiritual authority. This story reminds us that anyone with any kind of position of spiritual authority needs to put God first. Anyone who leads in the church in any conceivable way, whether you're a teacher or leading a volunteer group or whatever, we cannot abuse authority the way the Sanhedrin did. All the people of God, but particularly those in leadership. We need to be people who pursue the truth for the sake of justice rather than pursue our own preferences. And I as I see the Sanhedrin do what they did on that fateful night, I'm struck by the contrast with the way that God designed leadership in the church. Each local church is designed to be overseen by a group called the elders, and they serve together in a unique relationship because it's a relationship of mutual submission and mutual accountability. And it's actually a rather cumbersome structure because to carry out their role in the way God intended, they can't just show up in a meeting and share opinions and vote. They want to lead properly. They have to listen to the church. They have to listen to each other. And oh, do they have to listen to God. There has to be healthy give and take so they can prayerfully reach consensus. People do it wisely and well. It can prevent the kind of abuses we see taking place here with the Sanhedrin, where emotion, personal preference, rules the day. I want you to know that I am grateful for the elders of this church. They take their role seriously. They always try to do what they believe is best for our entire church. Number two, I think there's a lesson here about the road to the cross. We talk a lot about what Jesus endured through the crucifixion, and we should. I can't even begin to imagine how painful that was. And we are reminded of that every week as we celebrate communion. But the road to the cross, oh, that was incredibly painful. At every step of the way, Jesus would be, was betrayed by people and by institutions and by those who actually were responsible for justice. And he willingly accepted all of that 
in order to bring resolution to the problem of human sin. He submitted to God on our behalf. The road to the cross as well as the cross. Jesus did all of that out of his love for us. Number three, the big part of this story, honesty. And I find myself wondering, in light of the incredible love of Jesus that's on display here, why should we ever lie for personal gain? Why should we ever want to play fast and loose with the truth? There's no point in it. There's no lasting value in it. Caiaphas paid a price. The Sanhedrin paid a price. And we will pay a price. We'll pay a price if we play games with the truth and promote injustice. I find myself crying out to God, Oh God, please help us to be honest with you at all times. Please help us to be honest with each other. That your truth and only your truth might be the foundation upon which the church is built.